I would like you, for a moment, to set aside any way you might picture the universe. Instead, let us see it as medieval people did. Visualize in your mind's eye a series of spheres, each fitting into the last, like a Russian doll, or an onion. At the center, see the sphere that is the earth upon which you live, solid foundations of soil and stone, the only stationary point in the universe, the center of all. Around the sphere of the earth lies the sphere of water. This is natural enough, since the lakes and rivers and oceans rest upon their foundation of earth. Then comes the sphere of the air, which blows over the waters and through which we walk. High above the sphere of air rests the sphere of fire, the boundary of the changing world in which we live. And everything does change in this world of ours. Wealth, health, weather, relationships, all ever-changing, unpredictable in the chaos of the volatile natural elements that compose our world, and the fickle caprice of human whims. But above the elemental spheres that house and bind us, rotate the seven transparent celestial spheres, each glittering with the light of a single heavenly body, beyond which lies the sphere of fixed stars that contain the twelve constellations of the zodiac. This sphere is the boundary of our sight, the limit of creation, beyond which lies the hidden sphere of heaven encircling all. Standing upon the earth and looking up into the heavens, one could watch each celestial body travel across the signs of the zodiac. So regular was this dance, this planetary movement, that you could anticipate where they would travel. How perfect, how transcendent is this from the perspective of those who live in our ever-changing world, where only with limited certainty can we predict even tomorrow's weather. Yet the movement of the stars, in their regularity and perfection, could be anticipated far in advance, if one possessed sufficient mathematical skill. Of course the stars gave insight into what was to come, for we can calculate in the present where they shall be in the future. But this was not all they could foretell. The world, the universe, was like a great machine, each part of which was connected to the rest. Far from some niche or obscure topic, astrology is central to more mundane history. The farmer planning to sow his seeds, the general deciding the time to strike his enemies in battle, the king seeking to make the wisest decision to rule his kingdom, and the magician determining the most effective time to cast his spells. All informed their decisions 
with reference to the stars. Whether they employed one learned in astrology, or consulted an almanac, or performed the calculations themselves, astrology permeated almost every walk of life, and many decisions made throughout the course of human history. Yet, unless you already have a particular interest in the subject, chances are that when you hear the word astrology, you think of your zodiac sign, or the often glib and vague predictions from newspapers, or its depiction as an arbitrary and fraudulent practice in much modern media. This is a sad legacy for an art so complex and incredibly widespread throughout human history, since its early origins in Babylon over 4,000 years ago. Welcome to Arcane. I am Samuel Gillis Hogan, a PhD researcher focusing on the history of magic. And this is episode two, Tangled Rays, the complexity of medieval astrology. Despite what many have been taught, no educated person in medieval Europe believed that the world was flat. As we saw in the introduction, not only did they understand the world to be spherical, but the entire universe. Around 1230 CE, Johannes de Sacrobosco wrote what would become an incredibly widespread medieval university textbook entitled De Sphera Mundi, which translates either as On the Sphere of the World or On the Sphere of the Cosmos. Sacrobosco was a 13th century monk and teacher at the University of Paris, focusing on mathematics. In De Sphera, he summarized the layout of the universe that had been established for centuries and drew upon both Arabic and earlier Greco-Egyptian texts, such as Claudius Ptolemy's Mathematical Treatise, now commonly called the Almagest, written in 2nd century Alexandria. In this worldview, the spheres within spheres which comprise the universe were divided into two sections, the celestial or ethereal spheres, which included the moon and beyond, and the elemental or sublunary spheres, which lay below the moon. Before the discovery of Uranus in 1781 and Neptune in 1846, only the sun, moon, and five planets visible with the naked eye were known. These five planets, plus the sun and moon, were the seven celestial bodies used in astrology, all of which were interchangeably referred to as planets or stars, and I will use this terminology, despite these words having different meanings today. Rising up from the sublunary, elemental spheres, the celestial spheres began with the moon, then Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, and finally the sphere of Saturn, beyond which the sphere of the zodiac's fixed stars lay. 
What many today do not realize is that doing astrology properly involves a fair degree of mathematical skill. The planets had their own distinct properties, various things that they influenced and brought into the world. So too did the zodiac signs. And the planets all interacted differently as they passed through the signs of the zodiac. Further complicating this was that the planets modified the effects of the others, depending on the angles they made with each other at any given moment. So before astrologers could gain any insight into the meaning of the planets, they had to calculate the orbit of each celestial body, determine which zodiac sign they were in, and calculate the angles they made with one another. They then had to consult astrological books to determine how each of these positions and angles affected things in the world. And finally, they had to interpret these various influences to reconcile their sometimes oppositional effects and determine their impact. And this is, in fact, a gross oversimplification of what astrology's complex calculations involve, a full discussion of which could, and does, fill the pages of many books. You may observe that to perform astrology, one must be fairly skilled in astronomy. Indeed, there's historically been little meaningful distinction between astrology and astronomy until the early modern period. During the Middle Ages, they were essentially a single discipline. In fact, to call astrology divination, or even magic, is far too limiting. Astrology might be used to gain insight into the future, but it had many more applications, and was not merely one of the magical arts. It is a comprehensive system of thought, an underlying framework by which people understood the entire universe to operate. And most magical arts, as well as mainstream medieval sciences, had some degree of astrology in them. For instance, the medieval University of Bologna taught aspiring physicians how to calculate the influence that the planets had upon the body. And by the end of the 14th century, it was illegal in many European countries for physicians to perform surgeries without first calculating the moon's position to ensure favorable conditions for the procedure. But what did the celestial spheres have to do with what occurred on Earth? How did people understand the stars to be tethered to things within the world? While theories about the source of astrology's power varied, one of the most prevalent and influential in the medieval period was that proposed in De Rediis Stellarum, known in English as either On Stellar Rays or The Theory of the Magic Art. This influential work was attributed to the 9th century philosopher known in the West as Al-Kindi. He lived in Baghdad, the biggest city in the world, in the midst of the Islamic Golden Age, which began in 786 CE, 
by the Gregorian calendar. Baghdad was one of, if not, the greatest centers of learning in the world before the Mughal Empire mostly destroyed it in 1258, ending the Golden Age. At its peak, philosophers flocked to Baghdad from many different regions and cultures, sharing ideas. Al-Kindi benefited from this rich intellectual climate and expanded upon many Greek philosophical writings that were lost in Europe. Drawing upon his wide learning, Al-Kindi wrote De Redii Stellarum, which explained the connection between the planets and the world, which long had been accepted in astrology. The idea that the stars had an effect in the world is quite a natural one. The sun shines down its rays to warm and light the earth, causing things to grow. Likewise, the moon pulls and pushes the ocean's tides. Al-Kindi argues that, like the sun, all seven stars shone their rays down onto the earth, even if we cannot see them, and each had different properties and effects. Once these rays entered the sublunary realm of our world, they were absorbed by things on the earth. To borrow and expand a metaphor used by Dr. Frank Clausen in his first year undergraduate classes on magic, it is like the seven stars were radio towers emitting different signals. All things on earth are like various radios, each tuned in to a different channel. For example, copper was dialed in on Venus's signal. Just as a radio picks up on radio waves and emits music clearly for all to hear, so too does copper pick up on the rays of Venus and emits its effects on those who are close to it. Venus influenced many things in the world, such as love and beauty. Thus, wearing copper could draw Venus's rays to the wearer, bringing love and beauty to them. If one was learned in astrology and natural philosophy, the study of the natural world, then one would know which things on Earth resonated with which planets, and one could draw certain rays towards themselves by this means. This is explored further in episode 5 on natural magic, and episode 14 on astrological image magic. Not only physical things within the world were influenced by the planets, however, but even the demarcations of time. In the 2nd century BC, at Alexandria in Egypt, the intellectual center of the Hellenistic world, scholars drew upon Babylonian, Egyptian, and Greek mathematical and astrological traditions to create the astrological seven-day week, with each day being dedicated to a different planet and the god with which it shared its name. Once the Romans switched from using an eight-day week to a seven-day week, they did as the Greeks had done, naming the days of the week after their gods and their planetary namesakes. This can still be seen in our modern words for these days. 
Sunday of the sun, Monday of the moon, Saturday of Saturn. The original dedication of Wednesday to Mercury is still evident in several Romance languages, such as its French word, Mercredi. In fact, the word Wednesday comes from the literal translation of the Latin words for Day of Mercury to the Old English for Woden's Day. Woden, or Odin, being the Germanic god that was equated with the Roman god Mercury. This same process occurred for Tuesday, named after the Germanic god Tyr, who was associated with the Roman god of war, Mars. Thursday was named after the Germanic god Thor, who was equated with the Roman king of the gods, Jupiter. And Friday, which comes from the Germanic goddess Frigg, who was equated with the Roman goddess of love and beauty, Venus. Every week, we go through a seven-day cycle that was, in part, made to echo the seven planets of ancient astrology. The very structure by which we order and live our lives dictated by it. For those who lacked the specialized mathematical skills required to perform more sophisticated astrological readings, they could use astrologically relevant days as a more accessible way of capitalizing on planetary influence. Humans, however, were not like days of the week or metals. They were an odd case. This is because humans were not understood as being just another part of nature. We were thought of as a microcosm, which is to say, the embodiment of the universe in miniature. Each part of the body was associated with different planets and zodiac signs, the current positions of which in the sky above would have corresponding effects below, upon a person's body. Unlike copper, every piece of which drew Venus's influence, the rays which humans attract are different for each individual, determined at the moment of birth. The medieval understanding was that when a child first exited the womb, it was soft and receptive and malleable. So the condition of the rays at that moment forever imprinted themselves upon the child. When a person says, I am a Gemini, what they mean is that the sun was in the zodiac sign of Gemini at the moment of their birth. But astrology is not all about the sun. This is a superficial and simplistic way to think about it, and is likely a primary reason why people no longer understand astrology's complexity. When correctly performed, astrology takes into account which zodiac sign each of the seven planets was in at the time a person was born, and the angles they held with each other. The unique array of planetary influences at a person's birth produced a sort of baseline. It 
sets our radio station, so to speak. It is the way that this baseline interacts with the rotating positions of the planets that was used by astrologers to determine a person's likely future. I say likely future because astrology was not understood to determine fate. A person could use her or his reason and will to act against the promptings of the planets. In that regard, astrology's predictive application was more like predicting celestial weather. If people today read a forecast saying that it will rain, it does not mean that they will necessarily be rained upon. They could use the knowledge of the forecast to do their errands early, before the rain starts, or they can bring an umbrella to largely protect themselves from the water, or they could simply decide to stay indoors and not risk getting wet. We have the faculty of reason and choice of will that is required to avoid our futures being completely dictated by weather conditions. But most people, due to taking the path of least resistance, will likely continue on with their routine and get rained on. It was necessary for astrology to be understood this way, since any worldview which implied that humans lacked free will was theologically unacceptable in the Middle Ages, as is expanded upon more in episode 10 on divination. While the planets were not seen as determining fate, they were understood to influence circumstance and inclination. This could be used to optimize the success of certain decisions and activities by scheduling to perform them when the astrological conditions were most likely to provide aid. Just as one might schedule a camping trip when the forecast calls for fair weather, since camping trips have a greater chance of being enjoyable under the stars than in the rain. While weather forecasts might seem a rather prosaic comparison for an art as ancient and mystical as astrology, it is this very mundanity that makes it such an apt comparison. We have specialists who employ sophisticated scientific techniques and mathematical models to predict our weather. But for most of us, we just glance at what these experts say and go about our lives, using that knowledge to help us plan our week. And even if we do not check the weather, we will still feel the rain. This is very much the case for medieval astrology. The art involved complex and sophisticated techniques and mathematical tools which most people did not have access to. But they listened to what these specialists reported and it informed their perceptions of everything, from their conception of time and its meaning, to how they understood the makeup of their own bodies. Astrology was not the exception, but the norm, a subject so established that it could be used to justify other more contentious magical arts by demonstrating that they were actually rooted in aspects of astrological theory. Nothing, save the soul, was understood to be free from astrological influence.
it permeated all aspects of people's lives and their world. This echoes a much earlier statement from the Aeneids, written by the 3rd century Neoplatonic philosopher Plotinus, who wrote, Every action has magic at its source, and the entire life of the practical man is a bewitchment. Arcane is released on the first and third Wednesday of each month, weekly in October. If you wish to learn more about this topic, I recommend reading Astrology in Medieval Manuscripts by Dr. Sophie Page, The Sphere of Sacrobosco and its Commentators by Dr. Lynn Thorndike, Ancient Astrology by Dr. Tamson Barton, a History of Western Astrology, Volume 2, The Medieval and Modern Worlds, by Dr. Nicholas Campion, and Magic in the Middle Ages, by Dr. Richard Kiekeffer. Further books and articles on the subject can be found in the bibliographies of those works. Whether it was used to gain insight into an individual, calculate the ideal time to attain success in an endeavor, or manipulate astrological influences to magical ends. Astrology permeated the lives of people all over the world for most of the last 4,000 years, influencing the decisions that they made and when they made them. And this was a very real part of our history.